0: Hello, I'm Charlie Pickles and I edit the capitalism theme here at Unheard. Welcome to this full length audio version of my interview with Anthony Thompson. Anthony co founded Metrobank back in 2007 and then in 2014 set up the first ever British app based bank, Atom Bank. Banking remains one of the most concentrated consumer markets we have, dominated by the big four banks, and yet The financial regulators have increasing competition as a key objective. I asked Anthony, as someone who has set up two banks, whether we're really making progress on diversifying the sector and what the biggest barriers to new banks are. I also took the opportunity to ask him whether he felt that the banking sector more broadly has learnt the lessons of the financial crash and what does Anthony think banking will look like in a decade's time. If you haven't already subscribed to the Unheard Podcasts, please do. You can also find our audio documentaries and the weekly podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview. The banking sector lost an awful lot of trust as a result of the financial crash. We're a decade on from that. Do you think they've done enough to try and rebuild that trust?
1: I'm not sure whether they can. Um, and it's an interesting uh, dichotomy because if you ask consumer groups, you ask journalists, do people trust banks? And they go, no they don't. And you ask banks, do your customers trust you? And you? go, Yes, we do. We have this huge pile of research to support this. And you go, well, how can this be? Well, the answer is psychologists tell us. There are two types of trust. There's cognitive trust, which is about competence. And there's associative trust, which is about intent. So cognitive trust is if you're my bank, do I trust you if I put my money in on the last day of the month, it'll still be there on the first day of the month? Yes, yes I do. Do I trust you if I go to an ATM and put my card in, 200 quid will come out? Yes I do. Do I trust you to pay my mortgage on the last Thursday of the month? Yes I do. So I trust you as a bank to be competent. The second sort of trust associative is about do I trust your intention? Do I think you have my best interest at heart? And the answer, sadly, when it comes to banks is, no, you bloody well don't. And consumers know this. So I think the challenge for existing banks is to overcome this issue of, do I really believe you put me first? So it's less about managing trust, it's more about managing distrust.
0: Banking has continued to be hit with the sorts of issues that diminish trust, so mis-selling, executive pay outrages, high fees, charges, etc. How do you shift that corporate culture to something which is seen as more positive?
1: Well, I'm not sure you can because I think it's so deeply embedded in so many of these businesses. Uh, I think the great malaise in UK PLC today in general and in banks in particular is They think they exist to make money. They've lost sight of the customer. I believe passionately that the purpose of a business is to give the customer a better product or a better service or a better experience. And If you do that well and you manage your business well you will be profitable. Now, I think businesses should be profitable because those who put up the risk capital need to be rewarded. People who work in the business need to be rewarded. You need to retain earnings, to invest in the growth of the business. But profit should be a byproduct, not the purpose of the business.
0: And you've talked yourself about the importance of value-driven organisations, but we seem to have become very obsessed at quarterly earnings. What's the role of corporate governance in trying to shift that?
1: Well, I think there are several parts of the answer to that because there are several questions within there. The short-termism is driven by the city, is driven by um, the owners of the businesses, the the, uh, hedge funds of private equity, the uh, listed companies. But ultimately, they're owned by the end consumer who complains about them. And we see this rather bizarre situation. I remember it from my dad uh, many, many years ago when BT floated. He uh, bitterly complained about his phone price going up and then was on the phone telling me how well his shares were doing and he just didn't see a connection between the two things. And clearly there is. Um, I think corporate governance has an awful long way to go. Um, And if one looks at the construct of most boards, they tend to be white middle-aged blokes like me. Um, One of the things I was very, very keen on with Atombank was to get a more balanced, more diversified board. Um, Even gender diversity, gender balance, which seems a relatively straightforward thing, was incredibly hard to, um, to achieve. It's kind of one of my experiences of life. All the great women have been taken. And the same thing applied when we came to put the board together. The women who had the commensurate experience and expertise, there were so few of them, most of them had been snapped up.
0: And in terms of thinking now, where we are a decade on from the crash. Do you think that enough has been done to prevent us facing the same set of circumstances?
1: Wow, um, who was it who said, um, those who refuse to learn from the mistakes of history are condemned to repeat them. I think there is a little bit of that. We, you know, we have a whole new bunch of people in um, investment management who've never seen a downturn a whole bunch of people in banking who claim to have put all of these things behind them. I must know 200 uh, people who work in banking, many very, very good upstanding individuals. I don't know one person who was responsible for PPI mis-selling. There is no kind of collective responsibility for this. And it comes back to a point I made uh, earlier, which is if you really put the customer first, You wouldn't do these things, but for companies who put profit first, um, that results in PPI mis-selling and I think about 24 billion pounds of fines to date.
0: And one of the things that, I guess, ordinary people, everyday people um, talk about is how they don't think that people, those responsible for the crash, have been sufficiently held accountable. Do you think there's some truth in that?
1: I think there is. Well, there must be. The very fact that 24 billion pounds in fines have been levied for PPI mis-selling. And I don't think any individual to date has been held responsible. Um, I do think that the regulator, both the PRA and the FCA, are doing something about that. The um, uh, new managers regime does now hold people to specific job accountabilities and will find that person responsible, or they have said that going forward. And I think Andrew Bailey, the chief exec of the FCA, is a is a very decent individual. And I think he will pursue
0: it. You co-founded the first British challenger bank in a century uh, in Metro Bank back in 2007. And then, uh, n- you know, not, not having got enough of setting up one bank, you decided to set up another bank, co-found another bank, uh, which was Atom Bank. Why did you decide to do this, particularly given your background is, is not banking?
1: No, my is in marketing. <coughs> and it's really as a marketer that I saw these opportunities. Um, my view of marketing is that, for me, it's about looking at market data to find an insight that drives an opportunity. Now, of course, one of the great problems today is we are drowning in data. But leaving that aside, back in 2007, the insight that led to the opportunity that became Metrobank was all the data told me then and the data tell me today that what customers want is value. And the banks thought that only meant price. So they tried to lead on how low your mortgage rate was and how high your savings rate was. Well, in fact, on both occasions, they were trying to drive up your mortgage rate and drive down your savings rate. All the data told me that other things matter to people, so uh, price is important. About uh, one in seven people in the UK choose their bank because of price. All the rest choose it for other reasons. Um, service is very important to people. Convenience. Back in 2007, banks opened roughly nine to five. So we said, we'll open from eight to eight, and we'll open seven days a week. And that transformed people's service. Uh, experience Um, we said if we really care about user customer how can we pay somebody to sell you something so we scrapped all sales targets we only had customer satisfaction targets Um, incidentally within two years of launching Metro Bank with one branch uh, all of the big banks had moved away from commission based to satisfaction based or something like satisfaction based um so that was what drove the there was the insight that drove metro bank um pan forward to 2012 um i saw the most seismic shift in consumer data from traditional banking to digital banking in general and mobile banking in particular and you just need to walk down a street to see all these people like zombies walking looking at their phone to know that the future of banking will be on mobile devices. It's the future of everything else. Um, My my Metro Bank colleagues didn't share that same vision, so I stepped down and brought a team of people together and created a new bank, the first in Europe, delivered on mobile devices, um, which I stepped down from, uh, as chairman at the end of January, but I'm delighted to say is, is going incredibly well. It's a great team of people there. They're doing a fantastic job.
0: And so how do you go about setting up a bank?
1: Um, Well, when I looked at it, I thought, how difficult can it be, setting up a bank? There's really only five bits to it. Um, You need to pull a talented team of people together around a really strong business plan. You need to build out the uh, IT and infrastructure. You need to raise the capital. You need to get a license and then you need to persuade consumers to come to it. There's only five bits to it. I mean, how hard can that be? Of course, beneath each of those five bits, there's 50 bits, and beneath each of those 50 bits, there's another 50 bits. But fundamentally, that, that's what constitutes a bank.
0: And has it changed? Has it got easier or harder to set up a new bank in that period between Metrobank and Atom Bank?
1: The regulator, post the authorisation of Metrobank, uh, actually approached me and said uh, w- we want to see more competition we want to have more consumer choice and we think more banking competition is the route to that consumer choice something by the way I don't necessarily agree with uh, and they said well how can we change the process to make it easier for new banks so I played a very small part in 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 the process that led to shortening the approval process simplifying it reducing the amount of capital that banks had to hold. So the environment for new banks has been made much easier. However, there remains one big stumbling block, which is around capital. And the regulator think that they've helped take that problem away by reducing the amount of capital you need to get a license in the belief that once you have a license, it'll be easier to raise more capital. But the reality is that isn't true. If one looks at the amount of capital that's available in the market, say it's that much. Don't know what that much is, but we'll say it's that much. Okay, you're going to start a new bank. There's that much capital available. But then take away from that those people who cannot or are not mandated to invest in uh, non-public, non-liquid stocks. Comes down dramatically. Take out those who won't invest in a stock that's more than 12 months from a liquidity event. Take out those who won't invest in Uh, loss-making businesses, take out those who won't invest in pre-revenue businesses, and it's a tiny, tiny pool of capital. And I think we'll see a lot of new banks licensed, but I don't think we'll see many will actually succeed in the longer term, because banks by their very nature are capital consumptive, Then the amount of capital out there is constrained. And I've already taken about a billion dollars out of it for Metro Bank and and Atom Bank.
0: And that seems quite a major barrier then to one of the regulator's biggest objectives which is around stimulating competition. So is there anything that (coughs) the regulator could be doing to help encourage more capital?
1: No, I don't think it is a regulatory challenge. Um, It is a challenge for the providers of risk capital. Now, sometimes I think that's something of an oxymoron that they don't want to risk their capital, but assuming that they do, not unreasonably, uh, many of the providers of capital will say, we like the idea of funding the growth of a business, but we're not very keen on the idea of funding you through that build-up period and funding you through that loss-making period until you get to profitability. And the great irony, of course, is that's when banks need the money. So I think it is it's a capital issue, not in terms of regulatory capital, although maybe the problem could be eased by reducing the amount of capital banks have to hold against their risks. But then the corollary of that is, of course, whether another banking crisis, whether they're holding enough capital. So the problem is not one of the regulator um, or the regulation, it is of the access to capital.
0: The big banks, in particular the big four, but you could extend that to the big six, are incredibly dominant in the retail banking market. How have they responded to the new challenger banks coming through?
1: They've got bigger things to worry about, frankly. They've got branches in that nobody visits in places nobody wants to go. They've got legacy (laughs) IT infrastructure. There's still a lot of um, things in their balance sheet which have yet to work through which is why most of them traded a discount to their, to their net asset value. Um, if, uh, Metro Bank, I think today, has about a million customer accounts. Well, out of, I don't know, three or 400 million customer accounts in the UK, there's 60, nearly 70 million current accounts and savings accounts, credit cards and so forth. Um, it's a tiny amount that each one of them have lost. So until some of these challenges really get bigger, the, the big banks aren't going to worry about them. They've got bigger things to worry about.
0: And part of that is about customers, consumers switching. And they don't seem to be doing that on a, any great scale. So how do you make competition valuable to consumers?
1: Well, I, I would take slight issue with your first point about customers not switching. Um, there is a uh, the customer switching service um, and the numbers of people who switch are relatively small about 120,000 a month give or take And you go well that's a tiny tiny proportion but my experience both at Metro Bank and at Atom is people tend not to switch their entire banking on day one what they tend to do is they'll open an account they'll try it out they'll put a bit of money in, make sure everything works before starting to move things over. And you hear hear lots of anecdotes about people saying, well, I I have two bank accounts. The one where my salary's gone into since I was 16, uh, and the one that I immediately transferred all out into. So the number of people running more than one account is much bigger. So I think switching in that sense is a much bigger proportion than we believe. And it must be because there's, roughly 30 million adults in the UK and there's almost 70 million in current accounts.
0: You said you weren't sure that competition was the biggest issue. What do you think it is?
1: Well, I don't, I don't think more banks means more competition if all the new banks do exactly the same thing. I think the challenge is for people to come in and give customers a really differentiated proposition. Um, we're seeing that. There are some new entrants, the, the likes of Starling and Monzo and Tandem, and of course Atom. Um, but I think they are not without their, cha- and there are others of course, and others coming. Uh, they're not without their challenges. There is a, a wholesale change in banking, resale banking coming with the introduction of uh, payment services direct in what's called open banking. And simply put, Open banking means, with your permission, I can access your data from your bank and from your building society and from your credit card and your utility providers. I can take all of that data, slice and dice it, present it back to you in a better way and say, look, I realize I'm looking at your gas bill and I'm looking at your people who live in your streets gas bill. You seem to be paying a lot. Could we switch you provider? Now, this is going to be transformational. But it's going to take a while to get here. The legislation's in place, the technology's not quite there, and uh, the big banks are really pushing against it.
0: Do you think that customers are going to be comfortable uh, opening up their data to other companies?
1: Well, if you'd asked me uh, two weeks ago before what's just happened with Facebook, I would have said they seem to be happy to do that. There's a great little anecdote I read recently about someone uh, was offering a service to customers and they created a set of dummy terms and conditions one of which was you give us the rights over your firstborn and people were signing these away happily I mean yeah you know, we laugh but the reality is I never read the terms and conditions so I sign up to these things and we give away huge amounts of data um, without realizing it um, I think one of the things we will see as we go forward is that data ownership transferring from the Facebooks of this world, the Googles of this world, or the banks, to the individuals. And the individuals saying, this is my data. I want to protect it. I want to tokenize it in some way. And um, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, I think, is going to facilitate that. People are going to say, I will grant you some access to my data. Complete access to my data in exchange for something for me so big changes ahead
0: so looking to the future um, what impact if any do you think Brexit may have on you know what is a very vibrant FinTech industry in the UK
1: well again it's not a homogenous industry um, I think from a retail consumer perspective in financial services very little if anything to the average man on the street, to you or I, whether we're in Europe or outside of Europe, doesn't affect our day-to-day lives. It'll affect the price of things, but it doesn't affect the way we do our banking. Uh, I think in, in investment banking and commercial banking and, and other aspects of financial services, um, it will make some changes. But I guess for the likes of you and I, we won't really see a difference driven by Brexit will be driven by other competitive forces like legislation, like technology.
0: What would you like banking to look like in, the, in a decade's time?
1: Well, hopefully a little bit like uh, what we started with Metro Bank and what we're trying to do with Atom Bank, which is putting, genuinely putting the customer first. Um, I believe, you know, everybody talks about, well, how do you measure the success of your business? And I go, it's only two things that matter to me customer satisfaction scores and um, customer advocacy scores because if people are satisfied with you and they're recommending you to your friends you can manage everything else effectively so I think it is we need to move away from paying lip service to putting the customer first to actually putting the customer first
0: and do you think in a decade's time we will still have these big traditional banks, or do you think we will achieve a much more diverse marketplace?
1: Well, I think we'll still have the big banks. They have many hundreds of years of history behind them. Not that that means anything, of course, but very big balance sheets, very big customer bases. So I think they will. there's a potential that some will decline, but I don't think they will disappear overnight. In the same way that I think new uh, alternatives will come forward. Everyone talks about Google, Facebook and so forth. Um, and then the new new challenges, the disruptors, and hopefully Atom is in that category. But it takes a while, it, it, nothing's going to happen overnight. So I think in 10 years, there will still be the former big players. There will be some new players, quite what that balance. If I knew the answer to that, I'd be a very rich man.
0: Do you think part of it though will be the disappearance of using cash?
1: Oh undoubtedly, I mean we've already seen that in uh, some of the Scandinavian countries. It's almost impossible to use cash in some of these places. It's in the government's interest to have a a cashless society because the black economy um, takes away huge amounts of revenue from the, the exchequer. So, the government liked the idea of us being a cashless society. And the reality is most people don't use very much cash. Um, I think about myself, my um, income goes in at the beginning of a month. I never see it. It goes out electronically. I never see it. It's only when I go to a cash point machine that I see physical money. Money is changing. Money used to be physical. That's why we had banks. They were repositories for the physical uh, gold, silver, then coins, then promissory notes. Today, money's digital. And as we go forward, it's inexorable. It will become more digital.
0: And so if there's one thing that you could ask government to do to help push banking forward to a much more customer focused, consumer focused uh, sector, what would that be?
1: I don't think it's the role of government. I think consumer forces are what drive change. Um, Government tends to be a bit of a lagging indicator in that respect. And I think um, when people are confronted with real choice, with something really differentiated, with companies that genuinely do put them first, they will start to vote with their feet. And it's a generational thing as well. whereas uh, older people bemoan the lack of bank branches. uh, Millennials don't know what a bank branch is.
0: Brilliant, thank you.
1: My pleasure.